0: Hey, friends, welcome back. We are kicking off season 12 today, if you can believe it. Uh, And there's some good stuff coming up in these upcoming episodes. So I'm super pumped for that. I've been working behind the scenes during this little bit of a break. Um, But things have been good. I feel like since we last talked, Wyoming is starting to think about it being spring. I mean, I know we passed the spring solstice. That doesn't really mean a whole lot here. But the air just feels lighter. You know what I mean? You feel that? I love that sense of promise. Still very brown. There's still snow coming. That's all right. But we can just sense that the air is getting a little bit more springy. And um, I talked last season about how I spent a lot of time this winter pruning and kind of weeding out things in my life that weren't serving me. They weren't working anymore, getting rid of subscriptions that weren't needed and, and practices that weren't needed and just kind of reexamining things. And I feel like that's starting to kind of come to a close for me and I'm starting to shift towards growth just like nature is. And so that just feels good. I love seasons. I love the shift. I'm thankful to live in a place where we we get to have those seasons. So all good things, lots of fun stuff coming up. Um, Also, I just want to tell you, if my voice sounds funny today, I have not actually taken up smoking. I'm just getting overhead cold. And so I'm extra nasally and Kermit the Frog sounding and I'm trying not to cough into the microphone. But that's what's going on there. Um, I haven't been sick in a while. But man, this last week, it got me finally. So normally, I kick off these brand new seasons with a solo episode. Today, we're going to do things a little bit different. Because I did this interview, and it was so good. I couldn't wait to bring it to you. Um, I had the privilege of running across Rob Avis of Verge Permaculture. And I've not talked about permaculture here on the podcast, really, or at least I thought I hadn't. Um and I had this very limited scope of what permaculture was going into this interview. I really just thought it was like, oh, food forests and how to outline your garden and how to plant things next to each other that get along. Um and I realized that was a very limited definition of this world. So Rob expanded my horizons in the very best of ways and I would say this interview is probably w- one of my top 5 interviews of all time that I've ever done here on the podcast. It was that good. So we're going to kick off with this one today. You're going to love it. It's deep, it's meaty, it's practical, it's all the things I love in a good interview, and I cannot wait for you to listen. Uh, before we get into that, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Toops & Co. They're my favorite skincare line. You know, I love my beef tallow, and they're all about the beef tallow. I also love their makeup. I use their concealer, their mascara, um, their tallow lip balm. It's simple. It's clean. I kind of feel like they're the trifecta when it comes to really awesome products because they're a small family-run business. Like I I know the owners personally. I've met them in real life. They're real people. Um, They're products that are clean without a bunch of toxic garbage in them, and they work. So often, I feel like we have to sometimes sacrifice um, effectiveness in order to get those cleaner ingredients. That is not the case with Tubes & Co. So. A bunch of you have tried them already since I started talking about them last season. But just in case you missed it, you can go on over to the prairiehomestead.com slash makeup to go shopping, see what they have to offer and use the code homestead to save 15%. So now let's get into this amazing episode. So I am very excited to have with me today, Rob Avis. He is the founder of Verge Permaculture and he operates that with his wife, Michelle. Um, Rob, I'd kind of like you to tell us a little bit of your story and your background, because when I was reading your bio, you have a background in the oil and gas industry. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Which I think is, is really especially interesting. So kind of tell us your background and how you got into this world.
1: Well, it actually starts before the oil and gas industry. So uh, I'm the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And uh, I grew up in a 40,000 square foot cake facility that my dad owned. We would oh we would gosh. produce 100,000 cakes a day. So full on industrial food. Um, and I didn't really think much of it when I was young. But as I got older, I realized that the cheesecakes that I was eating had traveled through you know, kilometers of pipe or miles of pipe before they got deposited into a pan and then sent through a giant oven. And, uh, and so I left, I left the industrial food industry to go to university I became a mechanical engineer. And then I ended up in the oil and gas industry as a petroleum engineer. And, uh, I was the guy cutting trees down in order to bring pipelines to gas and oil facilities, uh, where we would process those, those resources. And, uh, you know i i ended up taking some more university courses while i was working in the industry uh, specifically around environmental design and i felt really conflicted because on one hand i was using these resources to drive to work and heat my house uh, but then on the other hand um you know i was taking down massive swaths of forest and so how could i criticize an industry that i was supporting as a consumer and i just started having a lot of cognitive dissonance in general and so uh, I ended up getting a three-minute video clip in my inbox one day as I was about to cut down hundreds of acres of forest to bring in a new pipeline, and it was talking about this thing called permaculture. And I, I watched. It was called Green in the Desert. It's still up on YouTube today. It's, it's about three, three to four minutes. It's not very high quality. It's pretty crazy that I decided to quit my job over this crummy three-minute video. Yeah. And uh, I called my wife and said we need to quit our jobs and travel the world. And and kind of repurpose our careers. She's also a mechanical engineer. So we spent 6 months in Denmark learning about renewable energy and how to repower the world. And then we uh decided well there seems to be a lot of stuff going on around repowering the world. How do we how do we feed the world? And that's kind of when the permaculture idea came back up. And so we spent collectively about 3 years traveling the world between Africa, Australia, the US, Canada, Mexico, um the Middle East, Europe, uh, trying to kind of retool our engineering careers, and then Verge was born out of that uh, around 2008, 2000, between 2008 and 2010, and we've since uh, taught almost 10,000 students uh, in permaculture, not quite there yet, but uh, and and thousands more in, in other programs uh, with regards to regenerative ag, uh, rainwater harvesting, um, you know, organic soil management, like you name it, anything that permaculture touches, we've basically taught something about it. Uh, and it continues to grow.
0: That's amazing. And I'm especially um, fascinated by just that transition that you you took. Because like you said, the cognitive dissonance, I feel like most people or a lot of people feel that, but I don't know if they even are aware they're feeling that. So the fact that you had enough awareness to go, this doesn't feel right. And you're able to question your own paradigm because you were making money in this industry. And it's hard to leave careers. It's hard to do switches. Most people don't have the ability to to think outside of that box. So that's. That's huge. Bravo. <laughs> That's amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a hard move in some regards, but it was also really easy in others. Like it was just, I mean, uh, we didn't have kids, so that helped a lot. And uh, we were relatively newly married. I mean, we've been married cl- for close to 20 years now. Um, and so it was a great opportunity for us to get to know each other a little bit better. And, and uh, when you're that young, uh, it's a great time to take risk. You know, it gets harder to take risk as you get further into your life, once you have properties and you have kids and you've got businesses. Um, so I, I do think that the kind of old adage of of encouraging young people to kind of figure out who they are by, some people will travel, other people think that it doesn't, not everybody has to travel to get there, but at least taking a gap year or a couple of years to kind of figure out who you are and then also to figure out who your partner is as well. It's really important.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah so for for the uninitiated, um, can you kind of give just a basic level definition of what is permaculture?
1: Sure, well, let's let's draw on a, a word that you just used there paradigm because I think it it's really important to kind of start there and then we can kind of get more tactical after that and uh, what it actually means to to practice permaculture. But I would say the biggest the biggest aha moment that I had, even though I was unable to articulate it at the time, and the thing that I articulate most often now, are of three paradigms that your listeners, pretty much everybody on earth is aware of right now, if they've got any kind of uh, connection to social media or they're reading any kind of books or newspapers. And, and so the first paradigm, which I think everybody will resonate with, and it's the one that I was looking directly at was this uh, destructive paradigm or the, um, the degenerative paradigm is what I typically call it. And so this is the paradigm that, uh, it's never, these words are never spoken, but everybody acknowledges it as soon as I say it, which is that humans are inherently destructive. And so we all walk around with this baggage on our back, basically, and and feeling guilty about our existence. And I mean, you hear these come up in conversations, like when when you're talking to a young couple that's just been married, should we have kids? We really want to bring kids into this world. Um, or, um, you know, you you talk about the oil sands or any kind of mining project or pipelines crossing the Canadian US border and inevitably environmentalists will get really up in arms. And so uh, the environmentalists are actually from a different paradigm called the sustainable paradigm. And so uh, the degenerative paradigm could be easily kind of classified as like corporate America, uh, capitalism, uh, this, this kind of. Expand uh, and conquer, essentially, mentality. Um, And while the sustainable paradigm is typically going to be environmentalists uh, who are kind of um, promoting this agenda of of humans are inherently destructive, we should, the best thing that we can do is depopulate the earth, uh, we shouldn't have children, um, capitalism is bad, uh, private land ownership is bad, like all of the kind of social justice narratives that exist, a lot of them kind of find themselves in the sustainable paradigm. And, and if you're not in either of those paradigms and you're just kind of sitting on the side, sidelines just like watching this and you're not really sure which one to follow, it can be easy to get sucked into one or the other. Um, and, and as this like binary, like left or right it, it, um, kind of way of being and permaculture says, well, we don't actually acknowledge. Uh, well, we acknowledge that those are paradigms, but it, it's not a binary choice. It's not left or right, good or bad. Um, and so the, the third paradigm, which, which permaculture embodies, is the one of the regenerative paradigm. And so if the most destructive thing that humans have ever done is build a nuclear bomb, then why aren't we asking the question, what's the most productive thing we could do? What's the most positive thing we could actually do? If we have enough intelligence and capability to build something as destructive as a nuclear bomb, what could be the most beneficial? And so we shed our shackles of guilt um, and we recognize that um, if humans can be just as positive as they are negative, then, you know, we don't have to throw capitalism out. We don't have to throw private land rights out and all of these things. We just have to figure out and understand that um, if the sustainable paradigm puts us underneath ecology, we're less than nature. um, The degenerative paradigm makes us seem as though we have dominion over nature. The regenerative paradigm says we're part of a community of living things on planet Earth. And it's actually, um, we are, as permaculturists, the most self-interested individuals on planet Earth because we recognize that the well-being of myself, but also my children, is a function of nutrient-dense food, clean water, clean air, healthy soils, uh, diverse uh, bio, um, biodiversity, Um All of those things, I'm not doing them to do good. I'm doing them because they're in my best interest to do that. And and for me to steward the environment around me is going to also give my children the highest chance of success into the future. So at its core, permaculture is a different way of thinking about humans' place in the world. Um, And tactically, it's essentially kind of like architecture, engineering and ecology all kind of brought together into a design system. That allows us to look at nature in a more healthy lens and say, well, this is my community. How do I support my community so that my community can support me? And I'm talking about the deer and the trees and the grass, Um, but it's not, I'm not going to graze it and I'm not going to cut this tree down and I'm not going to do all these things. I am going to have an impact, but I'm going to make a conscious choice with regards to whether that impact improves my ecology or whether it uh, degrades it. Um, and again, it's at, like when we look at the words. Words are powerful in our in our in our species. Um, when you think about the sustainable paradigm, which is the predominant, it's the paradigm that's becoming predominant in our culture, and it's a terrifying paradigm, actually. Um, it is. It is. It pretends to be really benign and like do gooder ish, but um, when you really kind of dig into the words, like net neutral uh, or xeriscaping, or, um, uh, talking about the human footprint. And, and it's like, well, because I'm an engineer and I'm a physicist, I've I've got a strong background in physics. Like we get into kind of these concepts of entropy and things like that. We cannot help, but to have a footprint on earth because I mean, I weigh 230 pounds. Um, every time I step on earth, I'm going to leave a footprint, but what I can do is I can decide whether that footprint is going to leave things better uh, for my children and for myself, then I found it. Uh, and, and usually when people are immersed in a permaculture design course, a lot of that mourning and guilt that has been fausted on them through the conventional media, even though they've never been able to articulate it, is Shed. And they they, yeah. they typically go out and eat a, a bacon and tomato sandwich from a sustainably raised pig uh, or yep. regeneratively raised pig. And they they are able to kind of move their life forward and start finding ways to use their life energy, which is very limited. We only have about 600,000 hours each to make the world a better place and, and enjoy their life while they're doing it.
0: Oh my gosh, that was just a really good sermon. That was amazing. Um, and it reminds me of what Wendell Bear, I think he talks about, um, being a part of nature. And I remember the first time I read his words about that, it just really resonated because like you said, we're, we're kind of shamed for existing right now. Um, and as you know, there's all this conversation about having more children and, um, overpopulation, which I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday that was saying that the population is actually going down. There's some interesting statistics about it going backwards, but that's a whole nother conversation, but, um, it, it is a relief to realize it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be dominion or, you know, humans are scourge of the earth. We can find that middle ground. And I love you're speaking my language when you're, you're saying there's not just this black and white binary. We can come to that middle. Um, so, wow. So good. So good.
1: Yeah. It was a huge relief for me to, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I'm an engineer. I'm a total nerd. I admit it. You guys can make fun of me, but um, after watching that YouTube video, um, I, I took out my calculator and I said, how many hours do I actually have on this planet? You know, like what's, and what am I doing with my, my life? Have I made conscious decisions about how, how I'm spending these hours and, and do I want to keep putting pipelines in for the rest of my life? And it turns out we have about 600,000 hours in our lifetime. Uh, it's not very many. Uh, and at the time that I'd made this decision, I'd burned through a third of them. Yeah. I'm not sure how, how old you are, but I'm, I'm now halfway done about halfway And every time I get a little bit further, you know, past halfway, I'm getting even more deliberate about where, where those hours go, um, and, and how I'm choosing to spend them. And, and also like how I, you know, like social media in, in, in so many ways, I mean, thank gosh that there are people like you and, and that are actually putting conscious content out there. Um, you know, it may not get as many hits as the, as the, uh, the clickbait that gets, that gets put out, but like in a, in the, in the same way that we have to kind of be careful about the ingredients we put into our gardens and how we treat the soils that grow our foods. We also have to look at our, our brains as gardens as well. And, uh, and so like these toxic narratives are like herbicides and pesticides. Um, and they, they have way more influence over us than we actually, uh, then we give them credit for. And I mean, it's starting to come out a little bit, but um, I think we won't really know the full damage of this, the last decade and a half of social media for another, you know, 10 or 15 years.
0: All right. For those of you watching on video, I just want to address this because you're going to be wondering, Rob and I all of a sudden look very different. And that is because we are recording on a different day. Um, we had that amazing first part of the interview. We were going along and all of a sudden tech just quit on us like we couldn't get anything to work so we had to stop and resume so that's why we look different if you're listening to this audio only you probably won't notice but just wanted to keep it transparent Um, you're not seeing things we are wearing different shirts but I'm excited to dive back into where we left off Rob that paradigm uh, viewpoint you shared those three parts are so good Um, And this idea that permaculture is that way of thinking about our place in the world and how we can come alongside nature instead of being over it or under it. And so I kind of like that we had this break in between these two pieces of the interview because I got to ruminate on that. And I'd love your thoughts on how we can kind of take that to a more practical application. And I'm thinking especially uh, about the homesteading crew. You know, those are my people, those are, that's the world I'm immersed in. How can people like me who already are a little bit minded towards, um, being careful about nature and being a steward of nature, what else can we do? And how can we start to use this permaculture idea to shift our
1: way of thinking? I can't remember. Did we talk a little bit about the concept of footprints last time?
0: You did. Yeah. I remember you saying that we all are going to leave a footprint because we, we can't avoid that, um, but there's different ways we can leave it for the better or, or, or not. Is that a good sum- summation?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think I was talking a bit about birds too, right? Like the, the concept of, of what birds kind of do naturally when they, when they come out of the nest. Like they have this propensity to fly. They just know how to fly.
0: We might have missed that part. Why don't you, why don't you reiterate just in case?
1: So let's, let's start back with the... I'm just going to kind of talk a little bit about this concept of the, of the regenerative paradigm. And basically, like we can't avoid having footprint. Uh, having a footprint we, we newton got it right every action is an equal and opposite reaction and and so part of coming to terms with who we are as humans is recognizing that uh we we have an impact on the earth around us and so i like to say if the most negative things humans have ever done is the nuclear bomb or created as the nuclear bomb what's the most positive um and What's interesting, if you look at birds, birds have this amazing ability to, to fly. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that parent birds teach their baby birds somewhat how to fly. But mostly speaking, it's a genetic predisposition. It's a trait that they have. And so for a long time, I wondered, you know, what if if birds are pre-programmed to fly, what is it that humans are uh, programmed to do? What's our equivalent of flying? And you're a parent, I'm a parent, Um, we both know what happens when you bring your your toddler that's just learned how to walk and has their own little Tonka toy uh, into the garden while you're trying to weed or pull carrots or whatever, Uh, they will destroy things. Um, If you put them in a, a toy room, they will make a mess. And so there's this concept in physics called entropy, and entropy is the measure of disorder Uh, of any system and so if we look at a forest it has a very low entropy it's highly ordered it's organized um, it's highly productive even though it looks like chaos it's actually an ordered system versus uh you know an open pit mine has a high degree of entropy because it's had all this chaos so humans can't help our our version of flying is that we generate chaos Um, where permaculture comes in and how this kind of comes back into something practical is that um We have the ability, because of science and our ability to observe over long periods of time, now satellites that exist in space that can look at how we've acted on the earth. We have the ability to consciously choose that disturbance. And so this idea, this word disturbance kind of comes across as very negative, um, but it's actually values neutral. It could be negative or positive. We can actually make a decision um, to be just as positive as we are negative. And so how does that look on a farm? Bill Mollison had a quote um, that, that perplexed me for years, which was, everything gardens. And what he was saying is that every species on Earth gardens. It, it manipulates its environment. So a beaver chops down trees and it creates a lodge, and, is, and then it, it builds a dam. As a result of that, the background biodiversity increases 28-fold. The Arctic fox actually urinates in special places around its nest, Which actually encourages certain plants to grow, which encourages mice and other small rodents to show up so that the Arctic fox can actually garden those rodents. The pine beetle that existed in Northern BC, part of it was that humans planted one species of pine tree, uh, but the other part of it was that woodpeckers were actively moving pine beetles from tree to tree and propagating it. So they were farming pine beetles. And so we can look at all these examples in nature. Um, of other species that are actively you know gardening or farming uh, and manipulating their environment uh, to the benefit of uh, of themselves and so permaculture gives us a series of design tools that allows us to look at the environment that we live in um, it 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 helps us to strip away the guilt that has been placed upon us by these other paradigms and says, what does gardening look like? and I'm using gardening kind of as as gardening, but also kind of more metaphorically as well, what does it mean to actually cultivate the landscape around us in a way that uh, supports our existence without compromising the existence of the things that we depend around us? And there's actually some great anthropological examples of this. So the Eastern Seaboard of the United States um, some people claim that up to 30 million indigenous people were living there amongst food forests. Uh, yet we couldn't really recognize that they were food forests. They were they, they just saw these big trees that happened to be producing nuts and berries. They cut them down and they started cultivating grain. Um, almost every species in the Amazon is edible. And the reason that they're, they're edible is because they didn't have flush toilets. And so just like with a bear... When a bear eats berries and defecates, it's actually cultivating its own future berry grove that it can come back to and eat in the future. Um, People living in the Amazon, whether they knew it or not, were actively cultivating food forests because there was a feedback mechanism that wasn't being broken by going to a centralized sewage treatment plant. So um, this idea, the first idea in permaculture is that everything gardens. And so we have the right to manipulate our ecosystem unlike what the sustainable paradigm is trying to tell us. Um, But we don't have, it's not in our best interest to manipulate it so much that it's unrecognizable, which is what the degenerative paradigm is saying, because we actually want to, it's in our best interest to have clean air and clean water and to be surrounded by plants that just naturally do what they want to do effortlessly um, while producing a surplus for us. So that's the first kind of Practical concept in permaculture, and I'll pause there and, and let you comment on that, and then we can go into another uh, principle, if you will, on how we apply that to a homestead.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I've never, I, my, my, I, I don't know what to say because I've never thought of it like that before. I always, I guess, I had more of that sustainable paradigm. The second one that has seeped into me more than I thought. Cause I always kind of had the idea that, yeah, well, I mean, we're doing pretty good on the homestead with trying to be regenerative and trying to, you know, garden close to nature, but we're still kind of almost damaging it in a way. I I was kind of carrying that. But when you were talking about woodpeckers, moving beetles and all of this, everything gardening, like, I don't even know what to say to that. It's beautiful. Like, Holy cow. How have I missed that?
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a, 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 it's a simple shift inside of the mind. Um, and all of a sudden the world looks a lot rosier and it's not because it's, it's, it's falsely rosier. It's like, no, actually we, we belong here. We're like, because like, if you actually, if you, if you take the antithesis of that and kind of drive it to its logical conclusion, if we're not of this earth, if we don't have the right to manipulate our ecosystems, like every other species, then, then we're aliens.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know? And it's like, you either believe that we're of this earth or we're not. Um, And and like some of us have different spiritual beliefs to explain how we became, how we came here. We don't need to get into that because it doesn't really matter. Like we are here um, and we can can see all these other examples of humans, but also animals that manipulate their ecosystem to their benefit. So we have the right to do that too.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. Man. Okay.
1: So the next thing is that um, the problem is the solution. And, and, and this is a, a great way, like every time you come up against a problem and and anybody that's out there, that's homesteading knows that every day is full of problems. Um, your, your, your pigs get out or you have a really wet spring and you've got slugs in the garden. Uh, you have a really dry spring or dry summer and, and all your crops get eaten by grasshoppers. And, um, this, this is just so, uh, impactful in the environment that we live in right now of wokeness and, um, you know, the veganism movement and the vegetarian movement and like all of that's kind of heavily in- embedded in, in this sustainable paradigm. Um, if we as a society go vegan or vegetarian, we're all going to starve to death. Yeah. Um, You know, I think that there are subsets of humans on this planet that can live those diets when they live in subtropical or tropical regions. When I have students coming into my programs that insist on being vegan or vegetarian, I say, "Great, Um, everything gardens." And if that's the way that you want to garden, you need to live in the tropics or the subtropics. Uh, If you're going to live in the north, though, you need to observe how our ecosystems work up here. Yep. And so, when we have a year, because like every every season is different. Uh every spring is different than the last. It's never the same that they rhyme, but they're not the same. And so the ultimate expression of being able to work with a system that rhymes but's never the same is by having a- adaptability, which is the ultimate human trait. Mm. And so we have these aphorisms in permaculture that help us to think about what this problem is the solution actually means. And so you don't have a, du- uh, a slug problem, you have a duck deficiency.
0: Mm, okay. Or you don't
1: have a grasshopper problem, you have a lack of turkeys. Um, and, and so we start, we look very deeply at the problem and we say, okay, um, we have another aphorism that kind of ties nicely into this, which is that work is a failure in design. Um, and so you don't have, um, like every time you're struggling with drudgery um, or you're carrying five gallon buckets, you know, to keep your animals alive. Um, work is a failure in design. The problem is the solution. Um, it helps us to kind of stay positive, positive. and this is really important. Mindset is super important to designing a successful homestead, <clears throat> and I'll tell you why. And it's it's you probably didn't think we'd get into psychology, but um, our prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking layer on the front of our brain. Uh, is the newest addition to our, our brain makeup. And when we get stuck into negative thinking, uh, the blood goes to the ganglia, the, the, the croc brain, the yeah. one that's really good at getting away from saber-toothed tigers. Yep. It's not good at problem solving. And so at its core, permaculture is a problem-solving framework, and it helps us to think about systems And it helps us to think about problems, and it helps us to find connections. Um, And and so often, the solution to the problem that we're dealing with is sitting right in front of us. But because we're so mad that the slugs ate all of my cabbage, I'm unable to say, "Well, you know what? This year's we're not going to make sauerkraut. We're going to make duck confit. Let's get some more ducks. Let's turn these slugs into a whole different." output and so if you were a vegan or a vegetarian and you were depending upon that cabbage crop that just got decimated because spring didn't cooperate with you um you're screwed but as a permaculturist we're looking at our ecosystem i i had this uh consultancy a number of years ago and um he was a, a cattle farmer in the mountains and um he was he was spending so much money on hay and every year these massive herds of of elk would come in and eat all of his hay um and in the summertime the turkeys would kind of come in and eat all of his grass uh, and and grasshoppers and and it's like that old farmer's adage i'm sick of trying to keep things alive that want to die yep. and killing things that want to live yep and so part of this design thinking is like having the the humility to look at the ecosystems around us and say, what does this ecosystem produce effortlessly? Why can't I enhance those systems and live off of them versus trying to force systems onto the ecosystem um, that don't really want to be there? So I'll pause there and we can um, let you speak to that and then we can move to another principle.
0: Yeah, that's that's powerful. And I've often said, you know, here on the High Plains Prairie, um, I've said many times, like if you were a vegan here trying to grow your own food, you would starve <laughs> just because we, we were Buffalo country. I mean, we, had Buffalo drops near us and bones and all sorts of things. Um, and so early on in my homestead journey, as I struggled and fought and cussed trying to grow vegetables, I was like, you know what? it's effortless to grow beef here. <laughs> like I don't even have to try to grow beef. And so I figured that piece out. I still, yeah. I still out of principle, try to grow some tomatoes and I have some vegetable growth, but you know, it's, it's amazing when you stop forcing it, but man, we humans like to force things. I feel like we just like to, like, let's just make it happen. And it just sometimes doesn't make sense. Hey friends, I'm just interrupting this episode for a second to give a shout out to our other sponsor, the modern homesteading conference. So This is really exciting because up until now, all the big homestead conferences and events mostly happened on the East Coast. And that meant if you live out West, then you're either driving a long ways, you're flying a long ways. And that just makes things a lot more complicated when you have animals and gardens and all the things as we do. However, that is changing this year. So The Modern Homesteading Conference is a brand new event. It's going to be held in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. It's live and it's two full days filled with your favorite homesteading experts like Joel Salatin, Homesteading Family, Melissa K. Norris, Anne of All Trades, Farmstead Meatsmith, and many, many more. I was looking at their website and it's a great lineup of speakers. So Not only are you going to get all that valuable knowledge and the skill sets that are going to help you be more self-sufficient no matter where you live, but you also get the bonus opportunity to enjoy a concert by Grammy award-winning farmer and filmmaker Rory Feek. You know, I love Rory. He's been on my podcast. He visits our homestead every year. He's a dear friend. So that's a big treat. All the homestead knowledge by day and a concert with Rory at night. So classes will include raising a family milk cow, on site live butchering and curing demos. Like, that's pretty darn cool. Homestead income classes, four season gardening, cheese making, homeschooling, sustainable agriculture, and tons more. So, don't miss out. Tickets are on sale now. Head on over to their website to see all that is included in the event and to save your ticket. The website is modernhomesteading.com. And now, back to our episode.
1: There's another saying that I use a lot in our courses: is that uh, cultural sentiment. Cultural sentiment is our biggest limitation to yield. Cultural
0: sentiment. And so again, okay. if we
1: can't, if we can't kind of recognize when we're we're bringing our baggage into a situation, uh, we end up cussing and banging our head against the wall all the time because it it's like it's like well, I grew up with tomatoes, I have to have tomatoes. Yeah. It's like okay, well. If tomatoes don't grow there, then you should move someplace where you can grow tomatoes really well. Otherwise you should, because work is a failure in design. Uh, so, well, how do we, how do we kind of create this design? And so permaculture is really steeped in this idea of pattern recognition. Um, and so we have another saying that we want to do a hundred hours of thinking in one hour of doing. Mm. Um, and we, practically that's not possible. Like if we spent a hundred hours thinking about everything before we did anything, it, it would, we, nothing would get done, but it does create a little bit of pause in, in the way that we look at how we design our systems. it's like, well, I'm going to spend a year on my land before I actually do anything. Uh, if I do anything, it'll be a bit of annual gardening because it's easy to reverse that, but I'm not going to bring in the 30 ton hoe to you know, terraform this property until I've done a proper assessment of how water is moving on the property and how I want to manipulate it and kind of, you know, being in, in Wyoming, I'm sure you guys have brush out there. And so you're probably going to have things like chokecherry. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have things like wild rose, probably Saskatoon or serviceberry. I think you guys call it okay. in, in, uh, in the States. Um, those are screaming at you and saying, I grow here effortlessly. Um, there's analogs to service berry, the wild versions of service berry. There's cultivated versions of them. Um, if choke cherries go, then sour cherries are probably also going to go. If wild roses are are prolific, you're probably going to be able to get crab apples. Um, if you've got prairie chickens across the prairie, you're probably going to be able to have some sort of a, a fowl growing there. And so nature's design is sitting right in front of us. We just have to have the humility to uh, and, and the patience to basically be able to look at what nature wants to be like, what, what does she want to be? And so when I think about a homestead design, when I'm designing for somebody else, I think of a Venn diagram. It's like, what, what are the goals that I have? That's the first circle. Like, what are my values and vision? And what do I want to, what do I want to be in my life? And what does nature want to be? And if I can figure out where the intersection lies between my goals and my values and my vision and what nature's vision is. There's a, hopefully a sliver there. If you're a vegan living in Wyoming, there probably isn't a sliver there. Um, They're (laughs) two separate circles, but, um, but if you like to eat beef, um, if you like potatoes and carrots, if you like Saskatoon's or serviceberry, um, if you like sour cherries, you probably have a beautiful, if you like wind power, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) you probably have a, a really great place to live. Um, and so you start to mix and match elements that fit perfectly within that ecosystem. Yeah. Now, when we get this wrong, and, and we come back to what you just said about us trying to force things, if we look at agriculture over the last 10,000 years, agriculture basically applied the same pattern over and over and over and over again uh, without taking the time to observe what nature actually wanted to be, and the result is the Fertile Crescent, which is now one of the largest deserts on the planet. One of the most fertile places on Earth is now um, uninhabitable by humans unless we have fossil fuels and massive imports of food from other parts of the world. So permaculture gives us the tools to look at ecosystems through a a lens of humility um, and then gives us design tools to which we can talk about a few of those next, um, to get the right elements in the right place at the right time at the right scale. And scale is really important.
0: Yes. And I think that gives, hopefully that would give people a lot of peace and permission that their homestead, I say this all the time, but this is a whole nother depth to it. Your homestead doesn't have to look like everyone else's. It shouldn't look like everyone else's because if you're respecting your climate and your location, um it physically can't look like mine unless you live next door to me and and so on and so forth and so i hope that people like there is less of a prescription for the perfect old mcdonald's farm homestead and more of here's what you can do in your area i think that's free at least it is for me
1: totally yeah it is yeah. for sure it's a fingerprint they, they they fingerprints rhyme but they're never the are they they're they rhyme but they're not the same
0: yeah, yeah that's good
1: and so scale, time, placement, and form is a really important component to this. And and this kind of ties beautifully into these paradigms that we talked about. And so right now, the the narrative around beef is, uh, you know, they're killing the planet and the climate and blah, 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 blah. We don't need to repeat yeah. all of that stuff. There's enough of it out there. Um, the problem is not cows. And, and actually, you mentioned the concept of b- bison. There were more buffalo and bison running on the plains than there are cows today. Yes. yes. The problem that exists has nothing to do with properly set up homesteads. It has everything to do with confined animal feeding operations. And so we can actually quickly differentiate between a, a well-designed homestead and a poorly designed CAFO. And it's, it's in these four words, which is scale. So there's too many in one place for too long. So time, scale time. They're not typically placed very well. So the placement's wrong, especially when we have all their manure running off into creeks, streams, and rivers. Um, and you could say, you could make the argument that like, cows were meant to be in really tight herds. There's nothing wrong with that. So the form's probably okay. But we've got the timing wrong, we've got the placement wrong, and we've got the scale wrong. Um, so actually, I, I said that wrong. The scale is right because the pack, we've got the pack of animals, but the form is wrong because it's in a confined animal feeding operation. So pretty much every element in a homestead can be designed by getting the right scale and the right placement, the right form, and the right time. And what tends to happen, I find, on farms and homesteads is that, again, people will go to their friend's place or they'll watch a YouTube video, and they'll say, well, so-and-so Set their their system up this way. I'm going to copy the exact same thing as them, only to end up having uh, a train wreck. And and so what we're trying to get people to do is to actually think through the design of their systems, not just copy other people. Um, and there's there's certain tools like we use something called uh, a zones and sectors analysis. So zones is really interesting because you know in the same way that you'd never put your fridge in the attic your sink in the kitchen and your stove in the basement you could never cook in a kitchen like that um we want to use the same logic uh, of a work triangle that we'd find in a kitchen in the way that we set up our farms and so what one really e- simple exercise people can do if they're listening right now and they want a practical thing that they can take away from today uh Get figure out how big your gait is, like how big your your foot, your step is. So my I'm a, I, I walk about three feet in a step. Um, and then in the morning, when you get up and go do your chores, measure how many steps it takes to go to the coop, how many steps it takes to go to the dairy cow, how many steps it takes to go to the compost, um, and measure your trip in steps. And then multiply that times the number of times you do that per day. Then multiply that times 365 days of the year. And we actually do this on Google Earth Pro. We'll do it on a map. And I actually draw it out with a line tool and I measure out how many feet I walk in a day or how many meters I walk in a day. And then I I multiply that out times the year. And most of our clients end up walking hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of miles or kilometers in a year, managing systems. And so if we can do a time and motion study and just place elements so that th- there's relationships between them, uh, that reduce the amount of work that you have to do. So like your chicken, chickens and your compost could be together. Um, or your, um, your, your house can harvest rainwater. There's just all these elements, all these synergies that we can create, uh, that will eliminate labor work is a failure in design. And so we use something called zones for that. So, The things we go to all the time are in our zone one. The things we go to less often are our zone two, zone three, zone four. And we actually consciously place elements in our property based upon how close they need to be relative to how often we go to see them. And so that's a really, really simple design tool that we use for element placement.
0: I like that. And that's, yeah, so practical. As I'm hearing you think, or as I'm hearing you talk through this, just even thinking about rainwater in the house, I'm realizing my view of permaculture has been far too narrow For some reason, I had this idea that it was just how I'm growing things together in my garden. And it's really, it's just an entire mindset of, of course, the garden and the growing, but it's how we're, the placement, it's the animals, it's being mindful of our climate. So, like, there's just, it's just a whole broader, much broader world than I thought previously.
1: Yeah, I had a client uh, a couple of years ago, they were really concerned about being off grid and, and kind of meeting all of their food, energy, water, shelter, and waste requirements. And so that's actually those are the pillars that we talked about in permaculture. So it's all of those things. And so I helped them to design one of the lowest energy houses in Alberta. Their house is uh 1800 square feet and we can heat the entire house off of the smallest burner on your electric stove. So about 12,000 BTUs. Um, we then did an analysis on their and this comes back to the systems thinking approach we did an analysis on their septic effluent. So we designed a septic uh, system, which is a really expensive way of disposing of one of the most valuable waste products that humans produce. Like we we don't love to think about sewage, yeah. but um, in about eight years from now, the world is gonna pass peak phosphorus, meaning that uh, we will never have as much phosphorus in eight years from now that we have today. Um, Phosphorus is the most important agricultural input for grain production. So if we kind of translate that out, um, we are heading into a gigafamine. So this how does this come back to, to septic? So we wanted to design a septic system uh, using the right technology, and it's not high-tech at all. It's very, very simple stuff. It's tanks and pumps and, and pipes, like very, very simple things. Um, so that the septic effluent that was generated from the house fed a shelter belt and coppiceable woodlot, meaning that we can cut spe- specific species of trees and they'll come back again. Um, so that every tree in that tree system that I'm growing off of septic effluent, because if we think about what a septic field is, if we set it up right, it's it's basically just an irrigation system, right. except that it's more, of an, more than an irrigation system. It's actually a fertigation system. So we've got water plus nutrient in it. So we can pump water, this nutrient rich water, which is our phosphorus, our potassium and our nitrogen into distribution systems that feed trees. So the trees themselves will reduce the wind and wind can have a 50% impact on the heating of your house. If you can reduce the wind on your home, you can reduce your heating bill by up to 50%. We can then plant fruit trees, which can grow off of this nutrient rich water. So we're now growing perennial plants. They grow better behind a shelter belt because fruit trees don't like a lot of wind. And then we can also grow trees that can be coppiced like willow so they can get cut again. And so we are able to match the septic effluent to the amount of wood needed to heat the house on an annual basis. And every time they flush a toilet, they're growing their energy. And uh, eventually they'll be growing their apples and their cherries and their pears and their nuts. Um, we're not growing food close to the ground. It's all above, yeah. above grade. And we're reducing the wind load on the house to reduce the energy um, and also improving the overall condition of the property uh, because nobody likes to be out in crazy wind. Yeah. So um, that's a perfect example of how when we look at things through a systems mindset, the way we heat our house, the way we deal with our waste, the way we uh, manage our water, um, the way that we grow our food can all be connected um. So that every time, like I don't, that they don't think about what they're growing when they press that toilet button, that system is set up, it's in stone, it's in the ground. Um, Every time they go to the washroom, they're reinforcing that pattern of existence. And when we think about coming back to these paradigms again, um, you know, I have to get into a, a giant car to go and do everything, because that's the pattern that humanity was, was formed on. We're still yeah. functionally, I don't know if it's like this in Wyoming, but every small town is on a grid system. And that grid system, that pattern was, was placed into humanity's psyche by the Romans, so that centuries, the guards, could control people by quickly looking outside of a door and down a, a straight street and see if there was order in that street. And so we've got all of these legacy patterns that we've forced into humanity in the way we build our farms our homesteads, how we live in towns, how we deal with wastewater, how we harvest rainwater um, and you you literally need to you know i can't remember in the matrix whether it was the red pill or the uh, the blue pill or whatever but <clears throat> I think it's the red, it's pill. red pill um, when you start when you start to see these patterns and these these systems that that we're surrounded by um what you realize is that every time we contribute to these same systems these same ideas that we're actually just strengthening the handcuffs on our wrists um because all of this at the end of the day like permaculture is about improving well-being for me and and the way that i do that is by enhancing the well-being of all of my relations meaning nature my family my community um and by setting up patterns that reinforce freedom and liberty and well-being, um, but you actually have to see the, the patterns in the first place before you can actually design yourself out of it.
0: And that's where that, that pattern recognition is one of your tenants comes in. And it's so cool that it's on a smaller basis as in where the where's the water flowing in your homestead, but also in the societal basis, which... I get super nerding, nerding out over that kind of stuff. Just looking at how I always like, how did we get here? Why do we think this is normal? Um, and yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Have you ever run across Matt Baudreau? Have you seen his stuff online? No. You, I think you and him would be like, you, you'd, you'd get along really well. He speaks about that in regards to education. Same thing. That's um, just fascinating of the things we think are normal. are actually not so normal. They're very, they're a very recent construct. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm you mentioned, well, you were mentioning peak phosphorus and how I feel like a lot of us have the sense that the world's um, going along at a quick speed towards some big changes, potentially not great. And I think there's lots of pieces of that, but how would you recommend that people shield themselves and their homesteads and their properties against this unpredictable future?
1: That's a really lovely question. Um, and, and, and great segue into Uh, another kind of facet we can talk about. So there's this gentleman uh, that has done a lot of thinking about all of this stuff and his name is uh, Nicholas Taleb (laughs) and he wrote a book called *Antifragile*. And so there's um, kind of three Greek myths that I think are worth thinking about and then we can come back again, kind of go up into the theoretical and come back to the practical here quickly. Um, The three myths are the sword of Damocles Uh, and so if you've not, if you're not familiar with that myth, it's this idea of a Damocles was a a king and uh, he had a friend that was very poor and his friend wished that he could have the wealth and the power of his friend Damocles. And Damocles said, absolutely, I'll give it to you for as long as you want. You can come sit in my throne. And so this, they switched places. And as soon as the poor person ended up in the king's, uh, throne, he looked up and saw there was a sword hanging over his head uh, from the ceiling and the sword was hanging with a horse's hair. Mm. And at any moment that hair could break and the sword would fall down and, and kill the king or k- kill the person living in that chair. And so this myth is a the myth of fragility. And so we can think about fragile things are things that, uh, break with volatility. So when a wine glass is a perfect example, if I ship you a wine glass in the mail, I put a label on it that says fragile handle with care. So fragile things are uh, hurt by volatility. The next myth is the myth of the phoenix. And so the phoenix uh, uh, burns up every so often, turns into ashes, and it turns back into a, the exact same phoenix again. And so this is the myth of resilience. And so resilient things resist volatility. A concrete sidewalk is an example of this. We can hit it with a hammer, it'll chip, but it still functions as a sidewalk. And then the last myth is the myth of the hydra. And so when you chop the head off of one of the many heads that the hydra has, eight more come back. And so this is the myth of anti-fragility. And so anti-fragile systems, sorry, uh, resilient systems, which was the phoenix, are indifferent to volatility, and anti-fragile systems actually improve with volatility. So the best example of an anti-fragile system is the human body. Uh, or or even a pasture is another great example of that. And so if you don't graze a pasture, it eventually you lose it. Uh, if you graze it too much, you lose it. If you graze it the right amount, you get more grass. Um, the human body is the same. If you lift weight on a regular basis and it's the right amount, your muscles get bigger, you get stronger, and, and more anti-fragile. If you sit on the couch all the time and eat potato chips, you get diabetes and event and you'll live a short life. So um, I like to think about homesteads as anti-fragile assets. Um, and, and so, and, and some of your listeners may not have homesteads. Some people may be living in houses or renting. Um, you don't all have to have a homestead to be anti-fragile. There's things that you can do that Taleb refers to as asymmetric options. Now, that sounds really fancy and jargony language. What does that mean? It means that there are things that you can buy that will benefit you if none of this comes to fruition, but will really benefit you if it does come to fruition. And and so the best example that I can give of this is is owning a year's supply of food. Um, And so by buying a year's supply of food, you're buying stuff that you're gonna eat anyways. You're buying it in bulk, so you're probably gonna save money by doing that. You do have to have enough money to buy it all up front. Um, you're also going to probably improve your health by it because you're now, uh, cooking from scratch as opposed to buying pre-processed stuff. And so at the very least, you're going to, your health's going to improve and you're going to save money. But if, you know, it hits the fan, then, um, all of a sudden that 10 or $12,000 you had invested in food is now worth 24, 48. $72,000 because it's literally, I mean, we saw this in COVID. COVID was a perfect trial balloon for what, uh, you know, potentially could happen when supply chains other than toilet paper break yeah. down. Um, so everything, like uh, there's so many of these examples that would be applicable to your, um, uh, to your listeners. Um, you know, right now there's a conversation happening in my life about, you know, whether I should buy more silver as an example. It's like, well, what if you don't have the money to buy silver? Like what what if um you don't have an extra 20,000 kicking around to buy a bunch of silver to hedge your bets on a financial collapse which who knows if we're in the middle of right now or at the beginning of. Um and so what I say to my students all the time is like, well, again, the problem is the solution here. So let's kind of let's bu- let's build out the problem space a little bit and try and understand all these problems in a in a more holistic way. So less than I just did this math the other day, I was, I'm writing an article right now, less than 1.4% of the U S population farms. Okay. In 1970, that was 4%. In 1930, that was 33%. Um, so almost nobody knows how to grow food. Um, there's very few people that know how to, you know, not, not just vegetable gardening, but animal husbandry. There's very few people that know how to build, like a lot of the kind of core skills that we would have had in the 1930s don't exist anymore. And so if you're in one of these situations where you can't go out and buy all this silver or maybe you can't even buy your supply of food, like how do you navigate that? Well, invest in your skills. Um, and so I always say like, make sure you have skills that people will pay for with whatever the predominant currency uh, ends up being. Uh, there's another book that Taleb wrote called Fooled by Randomness. And the premise of it is that Um, almost every prediction that's made fails because the chances of getting a prediction right are almost nil. Like when we think about all the domains that you and I've covered in this period of time, whether it's food, energy, phosphorus, shelter, um, the chances that any of my predictions come true are the probability that it's wrong is way higher than the probability that I'm right. And so I always say like, uh, Uh, People that make predictions are charlatans um, because there's just such a low probability that they'll be right. And so you're better off to look at um, every single one of the things that you depend upon. So food, energy, shelter, water, um, money, and say, I I do this exercise with with my clients. I say, let's go through all of the supply chains that you're concerned about. And then I want you to rank them based upon whether you think they're fragile, resilient, or anti-fragile. So we can do this exercise right now. So I'll ask you, um, do you think the food system is fragile, resilient, or anti-fragile?
0: My personal food system or the industrial food system?
1: No, just just the the industrial food system that we... I
0: think it's very fragile.
1: Okay. And then the next question that I ask is, okay, and so what are the consequences? Uh, is, is assuming that you're not Jill Winger, and you have this great system in Wyoming, what is the chance? If you think the food system is fragile, what are the consequences to you um, if the system fails?
0: I mean, death, If starvation, <laughs> if there's, yeah. yeah, it's pretty severe. Catastrophic. Yeah, catastrophic.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so just going through this exercise with like food, energy, shelter, water, fertilizer, um, animal feed, salt, like any of the supply chains that you depend upon and just having an exercise with your family and, and literally just taking the a pen and saying, um, yep, yeah, this is fragile, 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 fragile. Uh, and a, a totally stupid example, but the opposite side, like is the wakeboarding industry fragile resilient or anti-fragile
0: i don't know i don't know much about wakeboarding probably
1: just just let's just just guess let's just yeah
0: uh i would assume i mean you're always gonna have waves so i'm assuming it's pretty resilient right
1: Well, I would say it's fragile because a wakeboarding industry depends upon fossil fuel, and it depends upon all these parts and all these supply chains and all this other stuff. Now, yes. So I use that example because you and I probably aren't interested in wakeboarding. But so then my next question is like, if the wakeboarding industry fails, let's say that you are a really big wakeboarder. Um, Now, if the wakeboarding industry fails, what's the consequence?
0: I mean, I might not have hobbies. I might not have sponsors if it's you know part of my living but i probably wouldn't die
1: <laughs> you're not gonna die. not gonna die exactly yeah. and so every one of these supply chains can be ranked with regards to whether they're fragile resilient or anti-fragile and then every single one of them can be ranked in terms of whether they're mission critical or irrelevant uh, and again we're talking about scenarios that are not maybe not the end of the world but like pretty dire yeah. um and so once you go through all of these supply chains that you depend upon and every single person's going to have different, a different profile, if you will, like either because they see the world differently or they live in a different geographic region, like the risks in Wyoming are very different than the risks in Oregon. Um, you know, like they're, they're just different, they're different things. Um, and then from there, you can use permaculture to kind of say, well, my... My energy system, my natural gas, in my opinion, is resilient. It's not anti-fragile, but it's not fragile either. Um, But the chances that natural gas are going to go through the roof in the next 10 years is really high. I don't know when that price transition is going to occur, but I know that I'm highly dependent upon it. And so it's in my best interest to figure out where I'm using that natural gas and which elements I can invest in in order to make my system anti-fragile. So I'm going to build a septic system that reduces the wind load on my my house. It also produces fuel wood on a recurring basis every time I flush a toilet, which the toilet is flushed by the rainwater that's captured by my roof. Um, And then I can harvest that wood every single year to keep my house warm. Um, And so it's a systematic approach of looking at all the things. And I know that what I'm saying might sound really complicated to people if they're just wanting to get into homesteading. Uh, some people are gonna say, "This is crazy. I'm never gonna go through this analysis, and that's totally fine. Chances are if you're on a homestead and you're using just a little bit of logic in in how you're designing things, you already are super anti-fragile. Like you're in the top, you know five percent if you've if you've consciously looked at the supply chains that you depend upon and started thinking about how to uh, design your dependence away from them, um, the the worst person is the person that lives. On the thirty-fourth floor of a high-rise in the middle of a city, um, whose you know apartment building is dependent upon a huge amounts of electricity to provide water, massive amounts of natural gas to keep it heated, and uh, grocery stores that have at best three days of food in them at any given time, uh, you know I wouldn't want to be that that person. So probably the majority of people on your channel are already well on their way, if not completely anti-fragile to a lot of the issues that somebody living in a downtown core is not.
0: For sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, the homestead mindset person is going to be better off. I will say, I know you, you said you didn't want to overwhelm people, but I will say to those listening, if you are starting out, you know, I'm all about baby steps, steps and it doesn't always have to be perfect at the beginning. In fact, it's never perfect at the beginning, but I do wish I had had more of this mindset when we started our homestead. Back in 2008. I I mean, we did some things right, but we did a lot of things not right. And it's redeemable and and we can fix a lot of it. But man, if we would have had this bigger mindset in mind at the beginning, I think things would have been a little bit easier. So, just a a heads up for those of you starting, uh, you don't have to be perfect at it, but maybe bring some of these principles in sooner versus later.
1: Yeah. I mean, permaculture is totally, obviously, I'm super biased, (laughs) but it's totally changed my life. Um, And, yeah, just having basic none of the, none of the stuff in permaculture is is complex. It might maybe I've made it sound complex, but they're just they're simple, stepwise things that you can do to make sure that. Uh, and the reason that you want to do them, really, at the end of the day, is is we're not millionaires and billionaires. Um, we like yes, all those things are redeemable, but wherever possible, we want to get things right. As, as close as we can get them on the first time, because it costs lots of money. And even more than the money, it costs lots of time. Um, and uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm halfway through my 600,000 hours right now. And uh, every year that I get older, I, I, I was like, Oh, how can I be more deliberate with my time? yeah, um, Because it, it doesn't ever come back.
0: Right? Absolutely. And it, yeah, and it can be very expensive, too. I know everyone's in the homestead world or, or most of us are very frugally minded. And I can say from experience um, and like doing dumb things, like having to rebuild fence lines three times, because we didn't think about where the trees were going when we built the fence line, like just a little bit of forethought. Like, would you say a hundred hours of thinking for one hour of doing in a perfect world? Like there's a lot of truth to that. It, it pays off. Totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh my goodness, Rob. Cool. This is so good. Uh, oh, did, were you going to say something? Sorry. I think there's a little lag
1: no that's a, that's okay um, it's all good okay no problem
0: um i want to be respectful of your time um but i had one other question just out of curiosity when um we were talking about topics this was one of this the bullet points that really caught my eye so um i would love to ask it to you as our last question of the day and that is mm-hmm. it's a maybe i don't think it's off Topic of what we were just talking about. I'm sure it segues, but what does the Irish famine and our current predicament have in common? That was interesting.
1: The, the Irish, Irish famine was really interesting. Um, I just recently did a, a bit of a deep dive on it, and um, 25% of the population in, uh, in Ireland died during that five or six year period. Um, and what was crazy about it was the government was actively selling grain. other parts of the world while their uh countrymen were starving to death so interesting that the people that we vote in or that they voted in or were in power i guess whether they were voted i I didn't actually look at what their political system was at the time but uh, it could have been that it was still kind of uh wasn't parliamentary i I, that's an interesting thing i need to look into Uh, so that was number one 25% died, 25% left the country and immigrated. Uh, So that's not really an option that exists too easily anymore. Like it was easy to move around back then. It was hard because you had to go on a ship and and spend a long time crossing the sea. But, uh, you know, North America was accepting anybody that would come. Um, But I think the piece that really stood out for me was that uh, the problem was that they, they were growing one species of potato. And this kind of ties into the kind of vegan vegetarian paradigm that we were talking about earlier. It happened that this potato got sick, uh, and they had crop failures for years. And so if there's one thing nature can, can teach us and, and coming back to this concept of anti-fragility, um, you know, we've, we basically, we don't know when a gig of famine is going to happen. We don't know. Uh, and if we kind of bring all the concepts we've just talked about in this podcast um, back to the to the end point here. So the concept of fragility, um, like why is our food system fragile? Well, uh, every calorie of food that we consume right now takes 20 to 30 calories of hydrocarbons mm-hmm. to grow. Um, back in the 1970s, it was one to one. Back in the 1940s, it was four to one. So four calories out, one calorie in. And then hunter-gatherers were 29 calories out for one calorie in.
0: Wow.
1: So we now need 30 calories of hydrocarbon into every calorie of food that we consume. So if you take the oil and gas industry out, because let's say Russia stops producing their 8 million barrels of oil a day because of the Ukraine war, um, you know, you could end up with an Irish famine just from that. Um, If uh, there's only 60 cycles of of soil left on planet earth. Like they're saying now that we have 60 crops left on earth before we run out of soil. Every ton of grain that gets produced in North America erodes eight tons of topsoil. Um, we're only really growing like four major species on earth right now, corn, soy, wheat, yeah. canola. Um, you know, we we have almost no diversity left. Uh, conventional, Farmers uh, have taken out all the shelter belts, taken out all the trees so that they can make room for these massive combines. Um, We reached peak grain production in 1984 per capita. So the world has never produced more grain per capita per year than in 1984. We have on average between 16 and 18 months of food on earth for the 8 to 9 billion people that exist here. Um, and, and like, we're not even talking about massive plant disease, which is what, you know, spun off the the Irish famine. Um, we don't know what or if, or when any of these things will go wrong. All we can say is that there are so many fragilities baked into the food system. Um, we don't actually ever have to predict the when, um, it's it's literally just the right thing at the right time that knocks off one of these things phosphorus was the other one we talked about nitrogen is another one that's coming up now um, we we've really set ourselves up for living we are in a very precarious situation right now and what's really interesting is like you i'm not going to end on a really negative note here um, in fact i think that that There's so much opportunity. It's crazy, Uh, especially for everybody on this channel. Um, uh, uh, Joel Salatin said that in his lifetime, it'll be farmers driving Mercedes Benzes and not bankers. Um, The people that are on your channel right now, just by taking control of some of their supply chains, and we're talking about food right now, but again, we could go to any of those other domains, um, you have more knowledge about. Uh, a subject, then 90, what did I say, 1.4%, 98% of the population currently has. And um, when it hits the fan, um, you will basically have completed your master's program in agroecology. If you're using some of these ideas around how to work with nature and how to grow food and um, you will be the most in-demand people on planet earth as we have to retool our entire food system from the ground up. Yeah. Um, it may not happen as a black swan, as all, all at once, it might happen over a period of, of years. But what I found so interesting when I left the oil and gas industry, making all the big bucks that I was making there, is that I was able to make the same salary, almost, uh, teaching people how to grow food. This blew my mind. I was like, I went to university to design pipelines and now people are paying me the same hourly wage to help them to build gardens. Like that's how far removed we are from reality. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we have all the same conditions for the Irish famine, but uh, the people that you're leading, the, the community of people that are are part of what you're doing, people that are part of what we're doing, um, are the little sleeper cells of hope. Yeah that are just waiting for the right opportunity to uh, wake up uh, there. They are awake, but like actively start working in a, you know, not, not quietly. Like the people that are surrounding us, uh, I, I like to call them a quiet revolution. Yes. They're just quietly taking care of themselves and their background. Um, and they're just waiting for the right opportunity to, to sprout, um, you know, to build communities around them. And, um, and so, your careers, if you plan to have a career in this, is very hopeful. Uh, if you plan on farming and, and growing food, food prices are probably going to double or triple, and people will still pay for them. So, you're you're building all the right skills and resources to be able to take advantage of uh, that opportunity when it comes from comes to you, and and then reeducate the population. Um, and we know that it can be done. Like in, ni- in in World War II, I love the story of the Victory Me Garden. Me too. Me too. Um, it, it it's, it's not hard to kind of reinvigorate these ideas. And so we're basically holding culture. We're holding knowledge. Um, we're keepers of that knowledge and, uh, and we're ready to, you know, when the, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. Um, uh, or the teacher will appear when the student's ready, you, either way you say it. So,
0: yeah, I think that is a message of hope. And I, I am hopeful in even though the world feels so chaotic right now, um, I do feel like interest in these topics is growing. COVID kicked it off for sure, which is still so surprising to me, but a welcome sign. And then I I just see more and more buzz. I see people just in my own circles who, when we first started homesteading, we're like, what is wrong with you people? Like, why are you getting chickens? And now they're like calling me, hey, Jill, like, where do I get canning jars? And help me with my sourdough starter. So I'm seeing those change. And I think it's good. I think we're going to continue to see that. And that does give me hope.
1: There's lots of hope. Yeah,
0: lots of hope.
1: And I mean, in a perfect world, we don't go there. Sure. Like, it, it, like people wake up. Uh, there, there's one other story that I'm reminded of. Um, right before the turn of the century, the 1900s, the, the hu- humans had almost uh, exhausted every whale on Earth. There was almost no whales left in the ocean. We were using them for uh, light, like we would render the fat and and burn their fat in um, in lamps. And uh, it was right then that we discovered oil and gas, and so it was the discovery of oil and gas, ironically, that saved the whales. Mm. Um, we are a species of uh, that that tends to wait to the eleventh hour to transition, and uh, and I'm I'm very hopeful that we will do the same thing. I think a lot of people are thinking there's there's a podcast I listened to recently. Five percent of the thirty popul- uh, percent of the population is aware of the stuff we're talking about. Five percent is vocal about it, um, and so there's a lot more people thinking about this stuff than we probably realize, and they're just waiting for the right opportunity to to take action yeah. and I think what you and I are seeing right now in in the emails that we 're receiving and the comments that we get on our youtube videos is 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 that awakening that's that 's happening and it, it is very hopeful yes
0: it is, and I think that's a great place to end it that's good um. Can you let everyone know, I know they're going to want to to get more information from you after listening to this because it was that good. It was so good. Where can they find you online and how can they learn more about Verge Permaculture and the services you offer there?
1: Yeah, so vergepermaculture.ca. Uh, We're on most of the socials. And uh, so you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, but our website is vergepermaculture.ca. And we have a coupon for your members, I think $100 off a permaculture design course. So if you're interested in taking a PDC, a permaculture design course, and using some of these ideas in uh, in in the design of your own homestead or farm, um, you can find information, I believe, in your show notes.
0: Yes, I will drop those all in the show notes for y'all. Excellent. Wow. This was so good. I honestly thought we were going to have a little conversation about what to do in my garden. And this was so much bigger and amazing. I mean, I love talking about gardening, but I even more love to talk about paradigms and and breaking paradigms and opting out of these systems and um, taking the world to a more natural and more beautiful place. So this was so good. Thank you for coming on, Rob.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.